0: Hello, thanks for joining us. My name is Andrew Duckley, uh, the host of Space Nuts. It's great to have your company. And we've got a lot to talk about. In fact, um, the audience is going to do the talking because we're dedicating the whole show to questions. So we've got questions about Artemis 1, uh, dark matter, flickering stars, space-time, black holes, uh, gravity and terraforming Venus, uh, which will be interesting because... (laughs) It's a hotbed, that place. A very, very uh, nasty place if you set foot on it, which I don't advise. That's all to come on this edition of Space Nuts.
1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, five 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good.
0: And joining me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Good day, Andrew. How are you doing? I am quite well, thank you, sir. (laughs) And uh, you're looking fine? Yeah, I feel all right. Thank you. All good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, um, we might as well just cut to the chase and start (laughs) uh, answering some of these questions because uh, I I love question episodes. Me too. And I know we usually do every fifth, but we've been mixing it up. Oh boy, haven't we? So <laughs> we're not waiting till next week. We're doing it today. Uh,
2: just a pair of rappers, we are. We're doing. Yeah, anything. we are. Yeah, yeah
0: we're we just. We just. You know, we're not going to conform anymore. Quite Question right. episode a week early. <laughs> All right, uh, let's let's get stuck into it. Uh, this is a, a an ongoing story uh, concerning a certain rocket that is still on the ground when it shouldn't be known as Artemis 1. Uh, Ryan has a question.
3: Hey, Fred and Andrew. This is Ryan from Townsend, Delaware, in the United States. I have a question about the Space Launch System, the SLS. The main tank uh, is coated in that orange foam, much like the space shuttle's main tank was. The primary reason for the main tank being coated in foam for the space shuttle was to prevent the buildup of ice on the outside of it that during launch could break free and damage the fragile uh, heat tiles underneath the space shuttle. But the SLS has no space shuttle hanging off its back. So ice breaking free from it should pose little to no danger. I'm just curious if you happen to know why the SLS is coated and painted orange like that with that protective foam. Thanks for everything you guys do. Love the podcast. And Kate can't wait to hear the answer.
0: Okay. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think I know the answer to this one, sort of. But uh, yeah, um, safety is obviously a major consideration regardless, even, even with a rocket launch that's not going to have anyone on it, because in the future, Artemis will have people on board. So um, maybe we backtrack and talk about that particular tank. That he's referring to. Yeah,
2: that's right. So, Andrew, that was uh the it's the essentially the same tank that was used uh, exactly as Ryan says for the space shuttle. Uh the space shuttle had it attached to the side uh with the booster rockets uh and uh the space shuttle's three engines. Uh did actually think only um something like Twenty less than twenty percent of the work of getting getting the uh, spacecraft into uh, certainly to high altitude, because uh, the space shuttle had two firework night boosters attached to it, yeah. solid fuel boosters, um, which are also used in the space launch system. So there's a lot of technology that has been transferred from one to the other, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the the, the fuel tank um, itself, which actually. Basically, makes up the main body of the uh, of the SLS rocket. It won't be exactly the same because it's got got to take stresses that the fuel tank didn't have to take. Uh, but um, a, a lot of design principles have been incorporated, including that insulating foam, um, with good reason, I think, because uh, you know the prevention of ice buildup is really important when you've got anything uh, attached to the to the rocket. And in this case, you've got the two solid fuel boosters strapped one on either side of it. So if you had a lump of ice uh, that uh, clobbered one of these uh, in a critical position, uh, now, it's not anywhere near as fragile as the wing of the space shuttle, and, of course, that's what brought uh, the Columbia spacecraft uh, down um, yeah. when it tried to reenter uh, because of a penetration of the wing by a chunk of ice. So the, the solid fuel boosters aren't that fragile, but uh, the last thing you want anything, uh, you know, being hit by is a solid lump of ice, and I think that's the bottom line. That is why... We still see uh, the orange. Uh, it's not the most beautiful color. Um, I heard a, another description for the color. I forgot what it was. it was. It wasn't magnolia, but it was something like that. Very fancy. maybe something the, um, mandarin or something. It was. It, it was. No, it wasn't a baby one. <laughs> but it, it was something much more floral. Uh, and uh, it's a yes. It's a nice description, but of course, it's orange really. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I do recall with the very first official. Space shuttle mission, they they did paint it white for the occasion. So the first launch uh, was the whole thing was white. The shuttle was white, the solid rocket boosters was white, and the SLS was white. Uh, but they only did it once because it was expensive, and they you know wanted to show the thing off. But subsequent missions, it was it was that um, San Francisco bridge color. <laughs> yeah, <coughs> and, and uh, here's side sidebar. Do you know why the San Francisco Bridge, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, is that colour?
2: It's the nearest that could get to golden,
0: probably. <laughs> no, nothing to
2: do with it. Nothing to do You're with it. Sure the guy
0: who built the bridge loved
2: the colour. Oh, really? That's all there is to it. Yeah. He just loved the colour. Colours are uh, <clears throat> really interesting in their historical uh context and um, I'm going to throw one in as well that has no relation to any of what we've been talking about except it's about color and that is the anglo-australian telescope the largest optical telescope in Australia which is not far from where you are sitting now yeah about 150 yeah. kilometers as the crow flies um, it it's color you might be remember because you've you've been there and you've seen it the, the the tube of the the tube structure of the telescope which is not a tube it's it's like an open you know an open uh, 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 Lattice framework. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's white. Uh, that bit of it is the moving bit. But the mounting itself, the bit that steers the telescope around, uh, yeah. half of it is a sort of avocado or mustardy colour. And the other half is either gravy or chocolate, depending on which you like best. But those oh, colours wow. were chosen by the wife of the commissioning astronomer. Ben Gascoigne was the commissioning astronomer, the senior commissioning astronomer. His wife was Rosalie Gascoigne, who was one of Australia's most noted artists. During the 1980s and 90s, she produced a huge body of work based on mostly found objects, things, you know, um, things like road signs all keyed together uh, to make. And her work hangs in many, many significant galaxies. Sorry, not galaxies, probably galaxies as well. Galleries. It's in one. Yeah, it's in in one, one, yeah. Um, and, And it's a. It's a really nice thing, which make, almost makes me think that one day the Anglo-Australian Telescope, all sixty tons of it, should hang in the National Gallery as a
0: yeah, why a, not
2: as a work of art from Rosalie Gascoyne.
0: Well, they they hang famous planes from various ceilings around the world. They don't? do, yes, that's right, they do. Why, why not? not a famous telescope? <laughs> mm. So, did we answer Ryan's question about yes, why? It's- I, th- I think so, Ryan. So think- the foam is is a safety feature. Uh, why? I think I know the answer to this, but just in case people are wondering, what causes the ice? I remember watching the Apollo launches, and you'd see ice just yeah, you know, falling off the rocket, the Saturn <clears throat> V rockets, uh, like nobody's business—big, yeah. big chunks
2: of it. So, so it's the cryogenic fuels that are used. So, the stuff in the tanks, uh, and uh, in that regard, the SLS, the, the you know Artemis rocket, is um, uh, a more difficult challenge than than the Saturn V. Saturn V's first stage used kerosene and liquid oxygen. Liquid oxygen is a temperature of about minus 200 Celsius, mm-hmm. um, uh, but um, the SLS uses liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. Liquid hydrogen is minus 253 Celsius. Uh, so uh very cold uh if you 've got a moist climate which you do in florida uh you 're going to get ice forming on it so it is it's a major issue
0: yeah all right uh so it's it 's all about safety ryan and yeah. it's also a bit of a throwback to the the space shuttle missions where they um they obviously were very keen on on safety due to those couple of really sad incidents that did occur. But uh, thanks for your question, and we uh, we look forward to uh, the launch of Artemis 1. Um, by the time this podcast gets out, uh, they will have done that fuel test, but uh, as of now, Fred and I don't know how that went. But the other problem is um, uh, to do with batteries on board yeah. the Artemis yeah. 1, which uh, uh, ran out of certification. So whether or not they get approval to stay on the launch pad and replace – well, they can't replace them on the launch pad. No, they need right. certification to actually allow those batteries to remain in, in, um, in flux, if you like. Uh, if they don't get that approval, the whole thing goes back to the assembly room. So – That will be a mess.
2: And the the batteries are uh, for the self-destruct system. It's quite interesting. It's not, you know, powering up the spacecraft or anything. It's all about whether you can trigger something that will uh, basically destroy the, um, the, the launch vehicle if it looks as though it's going off track in any way. Yes, indeed. All right.
0: Good question, Ryan. Let's now head off to Cincinnati with a repeat offender named James.
3: Hello, Mr. Dunkley and Professor Watson. James from Cincinnati, USA, with another question. Professor Pavel Krupa of the University of Bonn in Germany published an interesting article he says disproves the existence of dark matter. Essentially, he posits that lighter galaxies orbiting heavier ones should be slowed down by Chandrasekhar dynamical friction, and that observations actually show them speeding up, as if they did not have dark matter. Professor Watson, Seeing as most astronomers believe dark matter is likely to exist, what do you say to Professor Krupa's claims? Thank you both, as always, for a wonderful podcast. Thank
0: you, James, for that astute question. Wow. (laughs) that that sounds complicated
2: yeah i think the i think um, i might have misheard there the the uh, paper that um, james is referring to was about the non-existence of dark matter was that right rather than yes. definitive proof of the existence yes. of dark matter maybe i misheard that um Look, it it's a hot topic. Uh it's great stuff. We had a keynote lecture at the Macquarie University Astronomy Open night uh a week ago, last Saturday, uh given by a Sydney University professor by the name of Celine Berm. Uh and she basically played devil's advocate here. She she put the pros and cons for uh dark matter or Modified Newtonian dynamics, or something like that, some sort of yep. modification. Um, I should say, uh, Peter Vawey, and our, our big fan uh, and an advocate of MOND, uh, was in the audience and very happy about the talk. So that's good. In fact, I think Celine's his supervisor for his PhD. But um, the, it, it, it was it was a really interesting talk in that regard because uh, you know you can present um, uh, fairly cogent arguments. On both sides, that dark matter is real that it 's some sort of subatomic particle, uh, or that it 's not that it 's that we don 't understand uh, either gravity or dynamics properly um, and um I find the state we 're in at the moment very interesting and mm. and pieces of you know evidence like the one that James has raised, and I think we may have actually covered that or something very similar to it a few weeks ago. We certainly talked about um, the, the dynamics of, of galaxies in, in multiple systems and, um, and what they tell us about um, about dark matter. Um, yeah. So that's a bit of evidence that suggests that it's not real. And yet there's plenty more that suggests that it is. And I think James is right. The astronomical community generally takes the view that dark matter is real. But I, I would say that uh, the, the doubt is is growing, uh, that it is. Be, be, and that's largely because um, despite many, many experiments and uh, another upgrade, uh, the Large Hadron Collider has not revealed any sign of something that could be a dark matter particle, and the things that they're looking for are candidates like axions or neutralinos, which are theoretically proposed but have not had any evidence of. Um, mm. So uh, that's so we're in a a period. I suppose you could liken it to um, uh, the time when the Higgs boson. Was predicted, I mean, it was predicted back in the 1960s by Peter Higgs, um, but it took until uh, what was it, 2012 uh, before it was finally identified. And so you've got there a pretty significant period of time, getting on for 50 years, uh, when when something was thought to be true and alternative ideas were put forward as to why subatomic particles have mass, uh, which is what the TIGS particle does. It gives them all mass. So uh, maybe we're in a similar limbo situation to that. Um, it There are one or two uh, scientists who are proposing a sort of killer experiment that you might be able to do. Um, and, and some of these might require a bit more time, uh, so so it is possible that we might, uh, I mean, by a killer experiment, I mean one that definitively proves one way or the other. Uh, I suppose it's possible that we might see something like that uh, you know within the next few years but uh it's a very interesting situation so what would i say to that professor well keep up the good work because we need you know we need the arguments that that uh, if we've got it wrong we we want to know that we've yeah i i it.
0: suppose it creates it it brings up an interesting point and that is um making assumptions that dark matter absolutely exists focuses everyone on finding it but if they're wrong
2: then we're not looking in the right place, or not looking looking
0: yeah. for the alternative.
1: The,
2: the, yeah, yes, that's right. And, and there mm. is there is another scenario actually uh, that maybe they're both right, because um, <laughs> yes. the universe is a complicated and surprising place. Uh, you know, there might be places where dark matter is doing its thing and other places where there isn't any dark matter for whatever reason and modified dynamics is doing its thing. So yes, it begs the question, uh, you know, will we ever understand it? And my guess is yes, we will. Uh, We've tied down, you know, it's a reminiscent another, sorry to keep drawing these things out of, out of the air, but I remember a time when there were two totally different camps uh, in the determination of the Hubble constant, which is, uh, that parameter that tells you how fast the universe is is expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, two um, values for the Hubble constant, which had very tight error bars, but one was twice as much as the other. Uh, one was 50 kilometers per second per megaparsec. The other was 100 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And guess what? The final answer that we now know is 75 kilometres per yeah. second or oh, thereabouts. It's almost Funny exactly that. the average of them. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you know, things like that uh, work out in astrophysics and maybe the same will happen with dark matter. I've got a feeling when they figure it out, they'll go,
0: oh, of course, why didn't we think of that?
2: <laughs> Has that ever happened to you in your in your role as an astronomer? Uh, Oh, look, every day, um, I, I honestly, when I look at uh, some of the, you know, my job now, a lot of it's just soaking in what's going on in the world of astronomy and looking mm. at what lots and lots of different groups internationally are doing. And there are times when I think exactly that. Why didn't I think of that? That's a yeah. brilliant experiment to do. I wish I'd thought of that. Because some of these things are really quite simple and straightforward.
0: Well, in, in radio, I, I still haven't got past the what's this button for situation. <laughs> still working on that one.
2: Don't press it now. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch anything. No, don't touch anything. If mm. wrong, don't fix it. <laughs> exactly.
0: All right. Uh, thanks, James. Great question. Great to hear from you. Hope all is well with the Cincinnati Bengals. I think they got off to a pretty slow start this season, but uh, still hoping for that Super Bowl. Fingers crossed. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson.
1: Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson.
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> and great to have your company and um, plenty of questions to get through still, Fred, and uh, this next one. Uh, this might be a simple one to answer. This comes from Chris, who's been outside looking up.
3: Hey there, my name is Chris from North Carolina, USA. Just kind of stargazing out here tonight and can find a star flickering white and red, which is seems to be abnormal from the rest of the stars we see in the sky tonight. Um, and looked up my phone, seems to be Articus or Morphid in the Boutis constellation. I should have saying that right. Um, but I uh, was just wondering that is an optical uh, illusion from possibly the atmosphere or is that effects on the light from travel through space time on the way here uh, or is that just a property of the star? Um, but yeah uh, again, first time leaving the question here. Um, you guys are amazing. Keep it up guys. Uh, love your podcast. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Chris. I think it's really cool that he was out observing, saw something, and thought of us. I reckon that was (laughs) yeah. That's great.
2: (laughs) That's awesome. It is is. awesome. Yeah. Well, you came to the right place, Chris. (laughs) So (laughs) I didn't get where um, where in the US Chris was. Yeah, I couldn't quite pick it up. Never mind. But um, anyway. It's great, and it's great to have um, you know so so many people from the United States coming in with questions. Mm. Um, so uh, Chris has sort of already answered his own question uh, because, uh, and it may well have been Arcturus, which is a bright star, which uh, could well have been fairly low on his horizon when he saw it. it. I'm not sure when this question came in, but. Um, Flickering stars like that, uh, that flickering is entirely due to the atmosphere of the planet. Uh, because while st- stars do change in brightness, they don't do it over the time scales that we're talking about. And the stars flicker in a scene from the surface of the earth on a time scale actually measured in, um, thousandth of a second. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a phenomenon which, uh, the technical term. There is a technical term. We often call it twinkling, and that's yes. the, you know that's the really nice way. Uh, but actually, the technical term is scintillation, uh, and it's uh, what's happening is that the light from the star, which is constant, hits the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, which, as as the light comes down through the atmosphere, the atmosphere gets more and more dense. Um, mm-hmm. The atmosphere is not homogeneous. It's got warm and cold pockets of air in it. The temperature differences are not large, but they're enough to change the refractive index of the air, which means that they disturb the passage of the light. And in fact, um, when you get to looking at stars relatively low down on the horizon, not far above the horizon, you also get not just this uh, the, the, the flickering, you also get the light being broken up into its spectrum colours because the the air currents are almost acting like prisms uh, that split the light up. And so you can see these flashes of red and green and uh, and blue sometimes. Uh, and it's actually something um, I find quite charming to watch, uh, but it's, it's the death knell for ground-based astronomy yeah. because as soon as you get a big telescope looking at this, Even high in the sky, the stars—you don't really notice the stars twinkling when they're, you know, a long way from the horizon, with the naked eye. But the telescopes do, and what you see, uh, basically, the the first of all, the star image is waving around really quickly. It's it's sort of the image itself is is almost like um, you know a, a moth around a flame or something like that. It's just flickering around. Uh, but it's also growing and tr- shrinking um, uh, as the atmosphere focuses and defocuses the light as these yeah. air currents go through. And so um, it's a mess. It's like this to sort of the football uh, where it should be a stationary point of light. If you're in space, a tiny point of light, quite stationary. But basically it looks like this inflated blob that's w- not only swelling and shrinking, it's moving around. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, one of the techniques astronomers use to combat this, uh, called lucky imaging, where you you take you can only do it for bright objects, you take, essentially take a video. And in those moments where the atmosphere is briefly stable, so you can see more detail, that's the image you select and you throw most of the rest away. Um, It's pioneered by uh, Craig Mackay, who's an old friend uh, at the University of Cambridge. So um, uh, that's the problem seen by astronomers. There's one addition to it, uh, and that is when you get uh, stars near the horizon and observe them in a big telescope, the atmosphere itself, the whole atmosphere, is acting like a giant prism. And so you get something called atmospheric dispersion, which means that instead of the star being a point of light, it's stretched into a short spectrum uh. Uh, with red at one end and blue at the other. And that's a distortion. And if, you, and if you add to that the scintillation that I was talking about, this twinkling effect, then you can understand why you can see multiple colours when, mm. when you're looking with the naked eye.
0: So it's just simply a trick of the atmosphere. It is. And which po- is a frustration. I, I've actually shared that frustration uh, when I've seen a fabulous moon rise and thought, oh, I've got to get a photo of that, and uh, it looks amazing to me. But then when I look at the photos, they're terrible because the, the telescope is affected by the um, – because I'm looking out rather yeah.
2: than up. Yeah, it, it's going through more atmosphere, and that's, it just that's exactly right. It's going through ruins much the picture. Thicker part of the atmosphere. Um, yeah. One little postscript here, Andrew, mm. is that uh, generally, um, and this is you know, some people perhaps think this is an old folk tale, but it's there's truth to it. Generally, planets don't twinkle. Um, uh, you, you really need to be looking at the the. Bigger ones, or bigger in terms of their angular diameter. Mercury does. Mercury's small enough that it it behaves like a single point of light, Uh, and so you get the twinkling. But for Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, um, they have a. Even though you can't see that they're a disc with the naked eye, that is the case. It is a disc, and so the light from the star follows slightly different path through the atmosphere and mm. it sort of negates the twinkling so you get a much steadier appearance particularly with jupiter and jupiter's actually in our eastern sky right now i was now, about to bring evening. that up it's yeah. it's
0: closer than it's been in 59 years from yeah, what i have
2: yes, read yes that's right it's uh, about at opposition and it's a it's a close opposition so yeah jupiter's uh one that it really it the atmosphere has got to work pretty hard to, to make Jupiter twinkle. It always has this steady light, as does Saturn as well, because that's reasonably big and bright mm-hmm. too.
0: All right. I might have to dust off the, uh, the telescope and yeah. see if I can get
2: uh, a Jupiter pick.
0: I reckon uh, it's worth, it, worth a shot. Indeed uh, it well, is. be interested to see if any of our listeners post anything on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. Uh, thanks, Chris. Let's now uh, talk space time with Tom. Hey guys, this is Tom in Orlando, Florida. On your most recent episode, you were talking about uh, space-time. Somebody
3: asked what it was made out of, and you mentioned the the ether, the luminiferous ether. When I first heard of dark matter and dark energy, that's the first thing that popped into my mind was ether. Both of those are the same thing, that they're going to turn out not to exist. What do you guys think of that? Great show. Thanks.
0: Wow. Um, (laughs) I I didn't know the substance of that question, uh, but it certainly reflects on something we've already talked about today. It does, yeah. Yeah.
2: And and it puts a nice historical perspective on it because, um, yeah, the ether, you know, was was, a logical thing. If sound waves need the atmosphere to travel through, uh, what, is the medium that allows light waves to travel? Because uh, you know, nineteenth-century scientists knew that light was a wave motion, mm. um, and so the ether was was what was postulated. It's an old idea, actually, that goes back um, probably to ancient times. But but the once you know that light is a wave motion, then it's a natural thing to say, okay, it's a wave motion. What's it a wave motion in? Um, and the answer is. Nothing. And it yeah. took that um, classic michelson morley experiment uh, in the 1880s to to determine that the ether wasn't there because um, if, there, if there was an ether, the speed of light should change uh, or should be different depending on what direction the Earth's moving in. Mm. Um, um, and it wasn't. It's always the same in a vacuum. And so that kind of... Put the nail in the coffin of the ether, uh, but also set the stage for both special and general relativity. Wow.
0: Okay. Asked and answered, Tom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good uh, analog. And uh, Tom, well done. You know, it, it, uh, the, when you heard about those those things, the, the first thing you thought of was the ether, and the fact that the ether was disproved. Well, as we've just been t- talking about a few minutes ago, it could be the same with dark matter. And, mm. and dark energy is a slightly different one uh, because there is clearly something di- driving the expansion of the universe uh, to a- accelerate. Uh, so there is definitely an energy there. Uh, but no, none of us have really any idea what it is, uh, what what this energy of space time is.
0: Yes, yes, and uh, that's probably a tougher nut to crack than dark matter. It is actually, you're mm.
2: absolutely right, Andrew. It is. I think it'll take us longer to work that one out than, than yeah. dark, uh, dark matter.
0: I am just um curious uh going back to the flickering stars question and yes. that's been caused by the atmosphere what must the ancients have thought when they looked up at the skies and saw the colors and the and the flickering and they probably would have seen more than we do because they wouldn't have had light pollution to deal with so well, they, they would've seen yeah. they, they would have seen some amazing things and, and
2: just stood there in wonder or maybe even fear yeah perhaps. i think something like the flickering or twinkling would be They wouldn't have known it was the atmosphere, Mm. Um, but the fact that it sort of happens every night would have reassured them that it's just part and parcel of the whole, you know, the whole uh, mechanism of of the heavens. Um, If it was something that suddenly hadn't happened before and suddenly did, uh, that's different. Yeah, that would be different. But you're right that that it was the evening's entertainment for ancient people. Possibly so. Yes. Yeah.
0: Fascinating. All right. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Chris. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. All right, we've uh, got a few more questions to go. And the next one comes from uh, our good old mate, Buddy in Oregon, I think. Yes, it
3: is. It's Buddy. Hello, Space Nuts. Buddy here from Oregon again. Hey, do they think that, could, could black holes absorb space itself? And if it does, could that be uh, dark matter? And then that could also be dark energy if space is expanding, pre- com- expanding from itself, this place where the space is growing faster than the, the black hole is pulling it in. All right. Sorry, just a thought, guys. Uh, big fan.
0: Thanks, buddy. It looks <laughs> like all these questions are dovetailing
2: very yeah, well. Very, very nicely. That's right.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, black holes absorbing space
2: itself. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> uh yeah it is um and so i'm just trying to get my head around the best sort of analog for this um because it, certainly black holes do very funny things to space mm. um uh, in in our understanding a uh, black hole is by definition a singularity a, a point in space of infinite density so it is actually in space uh but the space around it is highly distorted but not being sucked in, um, it's the stuff that's moving through the space that's being sucked in. So I think I think we can um, be fairly reassured that that uh, the the, ge- the geometry of space, while it is highly twisted and tortured in the region of a black hole, isn't being sucked into it. If right, you put it that way. It's yeah. the stuff that's in space that's being sucked in. But it is an interesting thought. Um, mm. Yeah, I wouldn't like to relate that one to dark energy. It's it's just too hard for my brain at this time. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh,
0: so probably no, buddy.
2: Yeah, probably no, no probably on that one.
0: Mm. All right. Thanks, buddy. Now, Simon has texted us a question. Uh, he said, hi there, Space Nuts, got uh, a question or two for you. How fast is gravity? Uh, it takes light about eight minutes uh, to reach us from the sun, give or take um but if the sun would just disappear how would it uh, how long would it take for earth to lose the sun's gravity is it instantaneous and how fast is magnetism when you're already answering the first question so that's what he's asking have a good day <laughs> you too simon um i've never thought of gravity having speed uh it does and um
2: uh, well, actually, I think we've um, spoken about it before. So, okay. Well, I, <laughs> you, I must have forgotten. You have thought about it. before. <laughs> Maybe it was so traumatic you've just wiped it from your brain. That,
0: that'll do. That's a good. <laughs> yeah. That's a good reason.
2: Um, so, yeah, it, um, you know, general relativity predicts that gravity uh, would propagate at the s- speed of light, and indeed it does, uh, uh-huh. because now we've got the wherewithal to measure gravitational. Uh, waves. Uh, we can time the speed of a gravitational event from one LIGO detector to the other. I can't remember how far apart they are—three, four thousand kilometers, I think. I think it's mm. three thousand. Uh, and so, you know, it's a significant amount of time that it takes for the signal to get from one to the other, and it is indeed the speed of light. So uh, that relates. That would be the same for magnetism too, because light is an electromagnetic phenomenon. <laughs> Uh, so magnetism is also part of that. So, yes, everything goes at the speed of light except space nuts. Yes, yes we're <laughs> a bit slow, uh, especially me. Now, he
0: does also ask about the sun disappearing and how yeah. quickly the gravity would disappear yeah, from our Yeah, eight,
2: eight minutes before the Earth set off in a straight line rather yeah. than being in orbit around the sun. So if keep, God just plucked
0: running. the sun out of the sky, we'd have eight minutes before we all...
2: Yeah, but would we wouldn't. We wouldn't know destroy. about that. We'd just see it going, and the Earth would, at the same time, just carry on in a straight line.
0: Yeah, um, and that'd be the end of that.
2: Well, it'd be entertaining, wouldn't it? It'd be <laughs> quite a, for a brief time a until shot, we realised yeah. what was we, happening. Until we froze to death,
0: yes, <laughs> yes, or something like that. Yeah. and
2: all the and all the oceans floated up out of the. Well, there's that too, yes. If we lost the Earth's gravity as well, yes, you know, if the Earth ceased to be a gravitating object, we'd mm. be in deep trouble. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: but if it was the, just the sun, we would just float off into um, a frozen
2: hell. Oblivion, yes, that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah, great question, Simon. Thanks for that. That's, I've got to go to sleep tonight, you know. That's... <laughs> Very difficult. Uh, No, I appreciate the question. Always always creates, I love these what if questions. We've um, we've got a few coming up in the next several weeks, which I'm looking forward to as well. So, uh, yes, thank you, Simon. Now, one final question before we finish up for this episode from, uh, I love this question simply because he will not give up on this concept. (laughs) He will not let it go. He's tried, tried twice to convince us that we could terraform Mars. And we finally convinced him that it can't be done. So he's moving on. I'm talking about Martin. (laughs) Oh,
1: Space Nuts. Martin Berman-Gorvine here, writer extraordinaire in many genres from Potomac, Maryland, USA, calling to help fill up Andrew's inbox again (laughs) after his email disaster. Okay, okay. So you guys have convinced me. It's no use trying to terraform Mars. So what if we turn our tender attentions to the planet Venus? Let's say for the sake of argument that we could figure out a way to make the atmosphere tolerable and breathable um, and the, bring the temperature down. Uh, what kind of problems would Venus's extraordinarily slow rotation, its day um, cause if um, the atmosphere were, uh, were able to be uh, adjusted like that. Can't wait for the answer. <laughs> love you guys. Love your podcast. Berman Gorvine, over and out.
0: Thank you, Martin. Well, we already know it's a very dangerous place for lens caps. So <laughs> and spacecraft. That's, that's one important safety tip. Yeah. And spacecraft.
2: Yes, yeah. it is. Um, yes. Yeah, so if if you had a benign atmosphere on Venus, and I, I suspect um, terraforming Venus is a non-starter, uh, simply because it's too close to the sun. I might be wrong there, because um, you know, uh, in its history, the Earth has gone through some strange periods like the snowball earth period when the planet was covered in ice yeah. and that's due to the complexities of its atmosphere and maybe venus has complexities too that would let you get to a snowball venus despite where it is in relation to the sun but yes the the fact that um venus effectively venus is upside down that's the thing it's if you define the north pole as that point above which a planet seems to rotate anticlockwise, uh as on the Earth, then Venus is upside down and uh, has a slow rotation that's almost, but not quite, tidally locked to the to its orbital period. So mm. it would be a very strange world. Um, you know, long, long, long days uh, and long, long nights. Um, um, the Swedish would. Uh-
0: just yeah, well to be they'd
2: be fine yeah, yeah especially the nights um i mean the earth is destined for a similar uh kind of fate when the earth moon system finally stabilizes unfortunately i think the sun'll have turned into a red giant star before that but when the earth and moon stabilize the earth the moon the month and the day will be the same length because it mm-hmm. will take the moon the same time to go around the earth as the earth rotates so one side of the earth always faces the same side of the moon
0: yeah or
2: always faces the moon so our day then will be about 47 of the present Earth days Wow uh, And uh, the Moon will be Half a million kilometres away So it will be a lot smaller in the sky We won't have eclipses anymore uh, But neither will one side of the Earth Be able to see the Moon anymore And we'll get mm. these long days And long nights And yes, the Swedes will love it It will be great Yeah, great.
0: well anybody up in that uh, Northern hemisphere <laughs> type of area Where they get those long summers well, And long, yeah, well, terribly and long nights sun in winters
2: Yeah Yeah
0: yeah, it's still one of my uh, bucket list things is to go and play golf in um, Scandinavia at 1 o'clock in the morning or tee off at midnight, yeah. which they do,
2: they do I'm yeah. told. Oh, they would easily. I'd love definitely. to give it a try. In the, in the Arctic regions, that's right. Yeah, that'd be um, fun. It's charming, as you know. We've been many times up to northern Sweden in winter when mm. the sun doesn't rise. Uh, and in yes. fact, on a number of occasions, we've celebrated the first sunrise of the year. Actually, the last time I think was in Norway, in Narvik. Uh, I beg your pardon, Tromsø, where the sun just appeared over the horizon, um, yeah, coming back it, into reality. Isn't there a time of year where it kind of bobs? Well, it, it's well, it bobs in the sense that um, it, you know that if you've got a the horizon, terrain, yeah, the horizon makes it appear and disappear as it drifts yeah. along. That's what I meant. I didn't mean it. Actually, bobbed like a ping pong ball. No, I know. I, know,
0: I knew that. Pretty. Yeah, just my interpretation of the situation. But uh, yeah, it's um, uh, Venus is fascinating because its um, composition is you know, um, it, it's, it's similar size to Earth. So when we it are is. standing on Venus, it's almost almost the same. Gravity, is it not?
2: Its mass is a bit different. I think the density is different. I can't remember which okay. way it goes. So, but but you're right. It's more or less the same. Uh, and um, we don't actually know. Uh, I, I've read papers recently that suggest that Venus may have plate tectonics mm. because um, – The the jury's kind of been out on that for a while. There are certain uh, geological features. Of course, you can only see them through radar uh, because the clouds are pretty well opaque, so you can't see any details with a visible light telescope. But um, there are suggestions that there are some geological features on Venus, that look as though there's been recent activity that could be interpreted as as tectonic movement, a bit like we mm. have on Earth. So, yeah, so fascinating. Um, great but place to You know, to go. Martin, when it comes to terraforming, never say never. No, never and say never. I just I look forward to reading whatever science fiction book it is that Martin's writing that's oh, going terraforming wh- Venus. In while it. I'm thinking about it, hang on. Yep. Oh.
0: Martin sent me a book and I meant to say thank you, Martin. And I think I might have mentioned it in a previous um, episode, but uh, the, yeah, I'm looking, for, I haven't, I'm going I'm taking Whoa. a plane trip soon. I'm going to take that and read it on the plane. Uh, the Double Life by Martin Berman Gorvine. Fabulous. So, um, oh, thank you for good. that. Um, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, See. Yeah, that'll be fun. So thanks, Martin, for sending that in. I appreciate it. And thanks for the question. As always, entertaining. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for your, um, your 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 sequel Venus <laughs> um, terraforming question. I'm sure there will be one. And then Don't it'll work on something. it would be
2: Mercury next. No, well, I was going to say, let's do the song. You know, why, why bother? Yeah, why about, not? You know, yeah, why not? <laughs> why mess about with planets? Yeah, Indeed. <laughs> Uh, thank you,
0: Martin, and everybody who contributed and to those who've already sent questions in that you haven't heard yet, we'll get to them unless we've already answered them in some other form, although sometimes we double up just because the topics are so very fascinating and um, so insightful too. We, we love to hear your questions. So you can send them in to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Uh, you can click on the uh, AMA link and send us a text question or an audio question there. Or you can click on the tab on the right-hand side of the homepage, which basically allows you to record an audio question. As long as you've got a device with a microphone, you are set. And uh, don't forget to leave your reviews through your favorite podcasting platform. Uh, Always helpful. Uh, just sort of gets gets us noticed by people who probably would enjoy Space Nuts but didn't know we exist. So uh, (laughs) reviews are always very, very handy and uh, and they work. I mean, we've, we've got uh, a growing audience, which is fantastic. And thanks for all the positive feedback, too. We really appreciate it. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And um, while you're on the, the website, while I'm spruiking, uh, don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop and uh, the Astronomy Daily tab there. And don't forget our other podcast, Astronomy Daily, which is available through our website as well. Uh, there's over 20 editions of Astronomy Daily out there already. So um, listen into to that. Um, I think that just about brings us to the conclusion. Fred, thank you so much.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great to have everybody's questions. Long may they continue. It's good to get my brain turning over again on some of these issues. Uh, so let's do it again sometime soon. Uh, That will be great. Uh, Thanks, Fred. (laughs) Fred Watson, uh,
0: astronomer at large, joining us every week here on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. Looking forward to your company in the next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye
3: space nuts you'll be listening to the space nuts podcast
2: available at apple podcasts google podcasts
0: spotify iheart radio or your favorite podcast player you can also stream on demand at bytes.com
3: this has been another quality podcast production from bites.com.